You know, I'm really excited about this message because it's about Jesus, and there is nobody better to preach about than Jesus. And my aim is very, very simple. I want you to see Jesus with even wider eyes. I want you to appreciate Jesus with even a bigger heart. I want you to see just how loving he really is. But there's going to be a bit of a residual impact to us. Are we loving? Are we alive in Christ? So I want you to pay attention to those two things. Jesus is amazing. Are we living our life so that the world can see Jesus through us? Keep those two in tension, if you would, as we go through this. It is interesting. It's very helpful to step into the world as it was at the time Jesus walked our earth. Now, you know this if you're reading the news, because in our day and age, increasingly... There's a worldwide hostility towards the Jewish people. It's increasing. So it's good for us Christians to remember that the Bible is essentially a Jewish document. And central to it all is that God came into this world as a Jewish man to save sinners. So if we're really going to truly understand Jesus and his message and his mission, we need to understand Jewishness and the culture from which the events of the gospel take place. We're going to look at this setting, we're going to look at the sufferer, and then we're going to look at the Savior through the first century Jewish cultural eyes. So here we go, we're going to jump right into it. We're going to look at the setting. It's just months before Jesus is going to be crucified. So keep that mindset, keep that, that timeline fixed in your mind. He's already been ministering among and to his disciples and to the Jewish people for nearly three years. And he's going to go into a synagogue and teach, now listen, for the final time. This is the last time he's going to enter a synagogue to teach. At least the final time it's recorded in the scriptures. And we get to Luke chapter 13, verse 10, and we find he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. The Jewish Sabbath is Saturday. It's not Sunday. It's Saturday. See, the synagogue was important to the Jewish people. So let me help you understand what the synagogue was all about. They were created, synagogues were, during the Jewish Captivity in Babylon. I mean, it makes sense, right? The temple is destroyed. They had no place. They're 600, 550 or so miles from Jerusalem. They couldn't go there to worship. So they created these synagogues. In fact, about 450 years before Jesus, they made a law. And the law was this, that any town that had at least 10 Jewish men living there had to have a synagogue. And in Jesus' day, there were about 500 synagogues in the city of Jerusalem alone. Now you think there's a lot in the east end of the Lehigh Valley. If you don't like Cornerstone, just go find another church. Well, they had a lot of synagogues, 500 of them in Jerusalem alone. They were places 
to assemble. By the way, that's what the word synagogue means. It means to come together. It means to assemble. And they would come together to study the scripture, to pray, to worship, as well as they would function, the synagogue, as their school for their children. So if you're a parent and you've got children that are six years till ten years, they're all going to be going to the synagogue for their education. And you might find it interesting that the synagogue was intentionally built on the highest ground in the village. And often, think steeple, had a tall pole placed on its summit so that everybody in the town, everybody in the village, or everybody in Jerusalem with 500 of them would be able to identify that building is a synagogue. I could go there to worship. Most of them built in a very common Pattern, kind of the Chick-fil-A of the first century. That was really not very funny. And it allowed, so it allowed every Jewish person to feel at home if they were traveling abroad. You just go to a synagogue and it was laid out just like every other synagogue was laid out. Well, you walk into it, you got one end of the synagogue, they had a cupboard, or they called it the ark. And that's where the scrolls, the scriptures were kept. And there was a minister, and that minister was responsible for taking and, and out those scrolls and then storing them back away, the sacred scroll, scrolls. And they would, they would keep the synagogue clean. And the center of the synagogue was a raised bema, think pulpit. It was a, where the pulpit was placed. It was the seat that Jesus referred to in Matthew 23 to. The scribes and Pharisees sit at Moses' seat. That's the seat where the speaker or the teacher would sit. It was on a raised platform. It functioned like a pulpit. But not only was there a minister in the synagogue, there was what was called the synagogue ruler or the director. And that person oversaw the service. And, and when Saturday came and the synagogue would begin, the services would begin, he would invite learned men to come up and speak and teach. And if he called them to come up, they would ascend stairs on one side of the platform. And when they were done, they would descend the stairs on the other side of the platform. And this is the person that would blow the shofar, that's the trumpet, a ram's horn, and that would let everybody know that the Sabbath had begun, and then he would blow it again so that everybody would make their way to the synagogue in order to start the services. The men would enter the main door. If they were very important members, they sat on benches lining three sides of the building. If you were not an important person, if you did not have status, then you would have a mat with you and you would sit either on the dirt floor or sometimes they were made out of pavers, flagstone pavers. Women and children entered a separate door. They would sit in the rear galley or the balcony. Their thinking on that was very simple. It's not so much that women were inferior. That's not really why they did it. They didn't want men and women together because of the distractions so that they could study. I think that's a great idea. We should start women on this side, men on this side. Once again, not very funny. One particular Sabbath, the trumpet sounds, that's the ram's horn, the shofar. Jesus enters the synagogue, and the ruler, seeing him, invited him to teach. Now, I gave you all that background information to help you understand the setting, so now we can look at the sufferer, point number two. 
Verse 11, behold, there was a woman who had had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. Now we need to view this woman through the eyes of the gospel. And when you look through the lens of the gospel at this woman, you actually see, if you're looking at, the, if you're looking at Jane, or Luke chapter 13, verse 11, through the gospel, you're going to notice that Luke put this event in between a series of parables. And let me give you a bit of a teaching tip. When you're studying the Bible... They say that context is king. There's a reason that Luke, who had reams of material about the life of Jesus, he selected certain ones under the inspiration of the Spirit, but he put them where he wanted them because he's proving something. He's showing something to us. So you can't just open up your Bible tomorrow morning to have your quiet time, open up to to Luke chapter 13 and just start at verse 10 because it's a really interesting story. You're really not going to get the message. You're not going to get the point until you back it up and start a little bit earlier. And this is what we're going to do. By the way, can everybody do this for me and do this with me? Flip back to Luke chapter 1. I want to show you something about Luke. By the way, every writer might not have said this of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, but every writer did this. Look at Luke chapter 1. I want you to see the very careful, deliberate, organizing, orderly way that Luke wrote his Gospel. And as much as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, verse 2, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me... Also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write, and here it is, an orderly account. See, we have an orderly account. And things are put into the right order, the order that Luke wanted. So back to Luke chapter 13. You ready? We're not starting at verse 10. You're not going to see the main point if you just read about this This woman with a disability, you've got to back it up, and we're going to start at verse 6 of chapter 13, where we see that a man in a parable, it's a story, had planted a fig tree in a vineyard. It's a big garden. But after three years, he had planted the fig tree. After three years, it's producing no fruit. And so he decided to cut it down. Because it's taking precious water. It's taking nutrition from the soil that's robbing the trees that can grow. But he had a vine dresser, a gardener. He entrusted that garden to the gardener who worked the vineyard. And that man asked the owner, I want another year. Please give me another year to give the tree every opportunity to bear fruit. And the owner agrees. Now, Jesus is the one giving this parable. Every parable has one main point. That's how you understand when you read a parable. It's not a lot of points. It's one main point. That was a Jewish teaching technique. It was not unique to Jesus. Rabbis did this all the time. And the point that Jesus made is that he is very patient with dead religion for a time. 
And through his preaching and his ministry, his father is giving time for this tree to bear fruit. But what is the tree? The tree is Israel. And Jesus had been three years laboring. And no fruit was coming from Israel. So he asks for more time. It's a limited time offer. And the outcome is certain for the kingdom of God has come. Look at verse 18. Now you go to the back end of the event that we're going to look at. And you find now Jesus is talking about his kingdom. There's a dead tree in the vineyard, but there's a really live tree that started out like a mustard seed. But it's growing, it's bearing fruit, and birds are finding places to nest in it, to find a home in the kingdom of God. And in between these parables about the dead tree and the growing tree called the kingdom of God, Luke orderly account places this woman's healing. And, she, and Jesus is underscoring the parables of a dead religion versus the living, growing, expanding kingdom of God. Now if you don't know that, you're going to read this story about this crippled woman and go, man, Jesus is really loving. He's really powerful. But I don't really know the point. Well, now you know the point. He's contrasting a dead religion called Judaism in Israel with the kingdom of God, which is lush, it is growing, it is expanding, it is vibrant, and you want to be in that kingdom. So we see a suffering woman has come to a failed, dead system full of religious activity, all represented in what was going on in that synagogue. And she was suffering terribly. She was hunched. She was bent over. I mean, I want you to imagine in your mind's eye what it was like to be this woman. She could not even look up to see the sky. What she saw every minute, every hour of her waking life up on her feet was the ground. For 18 long years, she's been hunched over with a disability. And she's about to catch the eye of Jesus. Likely, I'm going to suggest this, that I think she probably came late to the synagogue. It takes a while for a crippled, disabled, hunched over woman to get there. I don't know if that's true or not, but that's just my thinking. But she had come, finally gotten into the synagogue. Jesus is teaching. She struggles to a seat in the rear of the building, either a, a seat on the floor or if she could get her body up there, up onto the balcony. And it's likely that after this many years of seeing this woman, the religious leaders in that synagogue just probably didn't even notice her anymore. In fact, I'm going to tell you that the rabbinical mindset, the mindset of the, the Jewish pastors, was that she probably deserved her suffering because of some personal sin. That kind of siphons the mercy out of you, if you've got that theology. That's the merciless, powerless nature of a dead religion. There's nothing I can do, so I just stopped seeing suffering. And you know what? They probably deserved the suffering. That's what a dead religion does. That cannot be what the kingdom of God does. 
And there's a lot of churches and denominations that have a lot of religious activity all around the world, but are dead. They have no fruit, no life, no godliness. There is no holiness, no repentance. That's the fruit you want to see in a church. In fact, Jesus would identify one of these churches that was dead in the book of Revelation, chapter 3, and to the angel of the church in Sardis, write, I know your works, you're really busy. You've got a lot of really good community programs going on. You have a lot, something going on in your church every night. I know your works, you have the reputation of being alive, but let me unzip your heart for a moment, church of Sardis, You are dead. There's no power of the gospel. So here we have a suffering woman attending a lifeless religion that cannot help her. It is a fruitless tree. By the way, did you know that there are around 4,200 world religions? 4,200. And all their religious activity... Yet they are lifeless. And the worshipers continue on and they are bent. Get the imagery of this woman. Bent under the weight of their own sin that cannot get taken away from their souls. They are trapped in a power greater than themselves. And there is no help coming because they are a dead tree in the vineyard. But Jesus is about to show the fruit that can be found in his kingdom. This woman is about to have a personal encounter with Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So here we go. This woman did not fall off a roof. She wasn't born deformed. She was not afflicted because of sin. She did not have scoliosis. It was not subluxation of her spine. There was no chiropractic technique, no spinal fusion that was ever going to work with her. This disabling condition was caused, verse 11, by a disabling spirit. That is a demonic root cause of her crippled existence. Now certainly not all pain and not all disease and not even all sickness is caused by evil spirits, but this one, Luke says, definitely was. In fact, verse 16, I want you to look, verse 16, we learn that she is a daughter of Abraham. That's the words of Jesus himself, which could mean three things, I think, at least. I'm going to tell you what I think it is. It could mean that she was chosen by God to come to, to, come to faith, the elect of God. That's one thing it could mean. It could simply mean that she's a direct descendant of Abraham, Or thirdly, it could mean that she was a righteous woman of faith. I believe that's the one that's in mind here. That she had, like Abraham, believed. And it was credited to her as righteousness. Paul would later say in Romans 2, For no one is a Jew who is merely a Jew outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, Here's what a true Jew is. A Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. So my view, and I might be wrong, it really doesn't make much difference to the flow of the text, but my view is that she's a believer. That she had faith in her heart brought to life by the Spirit. By the way, if you're here right now and you have faith in your heart, that was only brought about by one person. The person of God and the Holy Spirit. Come on, you didn't wake up one day and go, you know what, I think I'm going to have faith today. 
I think I'm going to accept God. And I'm going to do it all on my own inclination, motivated by my own flesh. Your flesh and my flesh does, wants nothing to do with God. Something has to override our flesh's inclination, not our skin flesh, but that part of us inwardly that chose, chooses to rebel and, and commit ongoing cosmic rebellion to God. And that flesh that says, I want to sin. It's a desire in me. I want to sin more than I want to love God. Something has to override that in order for you to reach out to God in faith. That's the power, the regenerating, illuminating power of the Spirit of God. I believe this woman believed because God had brought her to life. I don't believe she was possessed by a demon. I do believe she was trapped under its suffocating power. Like Job, who was attacked by Satan himself, had a full-body rash of boils, Satan has the power, demons have the power to impact us, even physically. Maybe she's like Paul, who was given a demonic thorn in the flesh. This woman was attacked by a demon. It had afflicted her for, for 18 years with a disability. Why? I'm going to tell you, Christian, you need to know this. It's very sobering to hear this. Satan hates you. He hates me. And if you don't have an awareness of that throughout your day... You're not going to be attuned and alert to what the enemy is wanting to do. You think, well, my, my heart is kind of cold to God right now. I guess I'm just going through a dry season. No, you're under attack. The devil is leeching your joy. It's not your circumstances. You can count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, James says, when you encounter trials of various kinds. Your circumstances don't leech your joy. Your circumstances don't rob you of your vitality. It is sin that does that, and it's the tempter that brings the sin into your life. See, Satan hates believers. He hates Christians. If you're a Christian, that little, literally means you're a little Christ. You bear his name. He hates you because Christ is in you through the Holy Spirit. You bear his name. You're being remade into his likeness. And at every opportunity that he can gain, he will seek to harm you. He will seek to do something against you. But the only thing he can ever do against you is what God allows. And God allowed this for a time with this woman. For such a time as this, but I'm going to tell you right now, that time is over. Let's introduce the Savior. Look at verse 12. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. Jesus shows us what the vine dresser is doing in the vineyard of God. He's the vine dresser. He's the gardener. And there is great compassion in his kingdom. As the king of this kingdom sees this poor woman, invites her to come to him. I hope you hear what I'm about to tell you. And lays both hands on her. Not just one, it's in plural. And don't you find it interesting that the God who spoke the world into existence, 
who commanded a storm to stop on the Sea of Galilee, who called with his voice a dead man to life out of a tomb. He first spoke her freedom, and then he healed her by his touch. There's two things going on here, and if you're not seeing it, I want to alert your eyes to it. This is phenomenal. He didn't speak to the disabling spirit. He speaks to her. And again, I believe we see the grace and mercy of God demonstrated. We've been teaching you that there's a difference between God's grace and God's mercy. I've been defining this for you, and I'm going to do it again in just a moment. His grace, God's grace, always gets to the root of our problem. And his mercy always gets to the consequences, the damage that our sin has caused. There's a difference between his grace and his mercy. His grace always gets to the root. It's usually sin. Here it's a disabling spirit. His mercy always begins to restore from the damage that that root brought about. His mercy begins to restore the person. His grace first freed her. From what? A disabling spirit. He spoke her free, and then he puts his hands on her and heals her body. First his grace, then his mercy. And his grace is given by command, his mercy by touch. You see, listen, Jesus has no interest. I gotta, you need to see this. This absolutely eviscerates the social gospel. He has no interest and just dealing with her crippled body, but leaving her in the bondage to a demon. And neither does he have any interest, compassionless church, in freeing her from his spirit and doing nothing about her crippled body. Jesus is all in. He is the complete Savior. His grace takes away the sin. His mercy begins to restore from the damage that the sin causes. In this case, a spirit. What a demonstration of fruit, and what a vine dresser. And we would expect that the religious leaders would be full of joy and praise, but look what happens in verse 14. The ruler of the synagogue, indignant, that means he's furious, because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, there are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed. Don't come on the Sabbath day. You know, he doesn't even speak to Jesus. He's a coward. He speaks to the people that he can control. You want to talk about a bully pulpit. This is what it looks like. There are evidences of a dead religion. Listen, there are evidences... Of a person who calls themselves a Christian but is truly dead. I'm going to tell you what they are. There is no joy. There is no compassion. There is no power. There is a lot of control and a lot of anger. That's what's in dead religion. This synagogue ruler, the director, 
the one that oversees all of the worship services, he was furious because the healing took place on the Sabbath. I want you to notice that the word Sabbath in almost every modern translation is capitalized. This is a really big deal of a day. Keeping the Sabbath set apart, in fact, it's one of the Ten Commandments. And the Jews protected it from being broken. Listen, they even protected it from being broken accidentally. And the way that they did it was that they built a fence around the commandments. And they put all of these prohibitions, all of these rules, all of these instructions in place. So on the Sabbath command, one of the ten, they created 39 categories because they tried to answer the question, well, if we're not supposed to work on the Sabbath, well, then what constitutes work? So they came up with 39 categories of what work was, and every one of those 39 categories had dozens and dozens of subdivisions. And all together, they came up with 1,521 rules for how you had to keep the Sabbath. That's what it was like in the days of Jesus. I'm not making this up. One of the categories of work was called carrying a burden, quote-unquote. But what a burden was needed further defining. So they came up with this. Can a man reach down to his toddler and lift him up to his chest on the Sabbath? And they came up with the answer. The answer was yes, unless that toddler has a stone in his pocket. This is true. So they had to check the pockets of the toddler. Because if they lifted a toddler up with a stone in its pocket, then they would be guilty of breaking the Sabbath. That's a stonable offense. Can you untie a knot on the Sabbath? And the answer was yes, if it could be done with one hand. True. Was teaching permissible on the Sabbath? And according to Jewish tradition, it was, but not healing. You can teach on the Sabbath, but you're not allowed to heal. By the way, a little time out, a little rabbit trail. It strikes me that some of you have said to me often that I work one day a week as a pastor. If you were a Jewish person, I don't even do that. I don't even work at all. Have I said anything funny yet tonight? Anything. I don't think so. You see, Judaism, Judaism, that's the religion of the Jews, had become a dead religion. And Jesus wasn't trying to resurrect life on that barren fig tree. He's showing a new tree, verse 19, that's full of life. Where women like this one could find a nest and a home and a community and a family and its branches. All nestled under the wings of our Heavenly Father. For nearly three years, the gardener had been digging. Jesus had been fertilizing by preaching. Been fertilizing through miracles, but no fruit was growing in the dead religion of Judaism. It was suffocating the life from the Jewish people. But on this Sabbath, in this synagogue, the people got a glimpse of what life awaits them. And the tree of the kingdom of God. 
So what does Jesus do? Then the Lord answered that ruler who was responsible in that synagogue for perpetuating a lifeless, dead religion. He answered him, you hypocrites. Notice the plural. Not just hypocrites. There's others there that had authority. Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger, lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? In other words, what he's saying to them is, you care more about your animals than you care about this living human sufferer and he calls them out hypocrites you know what a hypocrite is in the greek it was an actor i'm talking like a literal actor it was a an Alyssa milano of the day <laughs> had to sneak that one in And here's what they would do. They would do Greek dramas. And they didn't have multiple actors. They had one actor with multiple masks. And when you wanted to change into a different persona on stage, you simply picked up a different mask and put it over you. That was called a hypocrite. It's a mask-wearing religious person. And these religious leaders looked really godly with their phylacteries, with all of their gown, with their robe, with all of these scarlet threads everywhere. But underneath the mask of their religion, they were dead. Verse 17, as he said these things, all, all his adversaries were put to shame. I have to tell you something about that phrase, put to shame. In the Greek, it means to unmask. It means to blush. They were unmasked and their true, loveless, fruitless, unrepentant selves were visible for all to see. Their blushing hypocrisy was seen by all. And all the people, verse 17, rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by Jesus. See, the exaltation of Jesus Christ brings compassion and life, and hope, and joy, and results always in the glory of God, the fame of God. It turns the spotlight onto God, that God would love us this much, that he would send Jesus down to live and die and be raised to life for us, so that we could live and not be part of a dead religion, but find a nest and a home and a family in the kingdom of God. That is great, great glory. So what do you do with this? What do you do with a message like this? Now listen, if I were you, and I spent a lot of my life sitting in the pew listening to the preacher rather than being the preacher, and I spent a lot of my life going to classes that would give you all the background of Judaism like I did a lot of it with you in the synagogue and with the Sabbath day and I would walk out and my mind would be man that was incredible I never knew any of that stuff this is so exciting but my life was unchanged I was more enamored with knowledge and familiarity with the Jewish culture than I was with Jesus you can't let that happen so what do you do with this message 
Well, can I suggest at least three things? I don't know what the Spirit of God's going to do with this message in your life, but I'm going to give you three things that I hope he's going to do. Number one, the first takeaway is that the only religion that is alive on this planet that can bear fruit is the one that offers you a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Every other religion is dead. It's dead. So Christian, focus on Jesus. Make much of him to your friends and to your families. Never be ashamed of the message of the gospel. We were dead in our sins, but we were made alive through faith in the crucified and resurrected Jesus Christ. Amen? Make much of Jesus and tell everybody about him. We're the only one that has a a religion that is bearing fruit. Number two, though, suffering is not ever. Listen, if you're a sufferer, I hope you hear these words. It is not ever the end of the story. Never. Wait patiently on God to move. He sees your suffering. He sees it. His heart moves. And he has the power to restore you. And he will, and I hope you hear me, he will when he deems it the right time. So wait for him and don't give up. There's a third one though. When Jesus acts, when Jesus moves, when Jesus does something, it always always, without fail, brings glory to his Father. Always brings glory to his Father. So Christian, trust him. Imitate him. Care about sufferers. And let that compassion move you to do everything in your power to relieve a person's suffering. You will bring great, great glory to your heavenly Father. Just like Jesus. Have you come to this Jesus? Can I ask you, everybody, I don't care if you've been at church all your life, we at least soberly sit under this question. Have you come to Jesus, the Messiah, the Savior, who wants to give you his grace and mercy? He wants to heal your soul and he wants to restore your life. Have you come? To him, has he invited you to see him? And have you said, yes, I will? It's the only way to come into the kingdom of God and find a home. Don't wait. Don't wait. Let's pray.